So good to be with all of you here on this Resurrection Sunday. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Amen. He is risen. We used to do that when I was a kid. The pastor would say he is risen and the congregation would say he is risen indeed. If you've never heard that before, uh, welcome. We're glad to have you here today, but let's do it one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. How many of you, that's your testimony this morning, that Jesus is alive. That's why you are here today. Amen. Today we're gathered as God's people to celebrate the greatest single event in the history of the universe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Today we celebrate that day over 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose. And when Jesus rose, he rose in victory. He rose undefeated. His resurrection defeating sin and Satan and hell. And his resurrection defeating even death itself. This one event, the resurrection of Christ, has shaped the course of our world for the past 2,000 years. Without a doubt, the most influential person who has ever lived, who has ever walked the face of the earth, without a doubt, his name is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. There's no disputing this fact. There's no debating this fact. Whether you believe the claims of Christ or not, whether you believe the claims of the apostles and the eyewitnesses or not, whether you believe the witness of the church of the last 2,000 years or not, what you cannot deny is that the impact that Christ has made on history and the world. At the very center of human history stands Jesus Christ. We literally divide our calendar by his life. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means Anno Domini in Latin, the year of our Lord. His life literally splits human history because when he entered the world, everything changed. Everything changed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of all the prominent figures and prominent men and women who ever, have ever lived in the history of the world, Jesus Christ towers above all of them. And today, 31% of the world's population claims to worship Jesus, not just as a good man, but Jesus as the God-man. That's 2.5 billion people alive on planet Earth today that claim to believe that Jesus was God. And the movement that he started, what he initiated when he entered into the world and he brought the kingdom of God and, and, and his followers and his church, his church has marched on victorious over the last 2,000 years in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, in the face of, of rejection. His church marches on. Why? Because he is alive. 
and he still calls sinners unto himself. He still calls people out of the grave today. He still calls people who are dead in sin to life in him. And that is why we are here today. Because he has saved us. He has called us out of darkness and into his light. The church marches on. Prominent leaders, they come and they go. Movements come and go. Governments and nations rise and fall. They all come and they go. But the church of Jesus Christ marches on. I've been to Israel. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to the tomb. I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm here to report today, the tomb is empty. There's nobody there in that tomb today. Jesus is not in the tomb. He's not in the grave. He has resurrected and he has ascended into heaven. And right now he is seated at the right hand of God. And it is the resurrection. It is the empty tomb that validates all of the claims of Christ, that validates the teachings of Christ. It is the resurrection that proves that what he said was true. It is the resurrection that shows us plainly and clearly and definitively that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he wasn't just a good man, but that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that Jesus wasn't just a teacher of morality, but that Jesus is the king of eternity. Amen. If you have your Bibles uh, today, you can open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at uh, this passage uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Now the Apostle Paul has a really interesting story because this man, the, the Apostle Paul, he had heard the message I just preached to you. He had heard of the resurrection. He had heard of the claims of the church. He had heard about this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who, who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Savior, who was killed by the Roman uh, 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 governor, Pilate, who was execution, executed on a cross. He had heard that his body was not in the tomb anymore and that his disciples claimed that he had risen from the dead. He had heard all of this. And he rejected every piece of it. He did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He rejected the resurrection as a myth, as a lie. The Apostle Paul started out his life as an unbeliever, as someone who did not believe in Christ. And you may be here today as an unbeliever. You may be here today as one who, who does not believe in the resurrection. Maybe your family twisted your arm and, and got you here and said, we'll go to lunch afterwards. Or, or, or maybe you just came. I, I don't know why you're here today if you're an unbeliever, but I'm glad that you're here. Amen. I want you to know you're in good company today. You're in a group of people that loves you and cares about you. But you're also in the company of, of the Apostle Paul who himself, when he heard these claims about the resurrection, wrote it off as a myth and as a lie. In fact, he was so opposed to the resurrection that he violently 
tracked down and imprisoned those that spread that message. He hated that message. And so he, he, he went from, from house to house searching for those that preached and proclaimed the resurrection. He searched for those that claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead and that that is why the tomb was empty. And he went from house to house arresting them, putting them on trial, and even overseeing their execution. Not only did he go from house to house, he went from town to town, from city to city, tracking these Christians down, these believers in the resurrection. He was a man who burned with hatred. He was full of anger. He was full of pride. He was brutal, and he was violent. And one day, as as this man was hunting down Christians, something interesting happened that forever changed his life. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus, risen from the dead, called to him and said, why are you persecuting me? At that time, Paul was known by the name of Saul and Saul replied to Jesus and he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. At that moment, Jesus, risen from the dead, appeared to him, spoke to him, changed him, forgave him of his sin, saved him, commissioned him, and sent him to now spread this message, to spread the resurrection message, to spread the news of the empty tomb. And from that day forward, Paul spent the rest of his life Every single day of his life, every waking moment, preaching the very message that he tried to destroy. Paul spent the rest of his life preaching the resurrection, traveling from town to town, not hunting Christians, but making Christians. Traveling from town to town, not persecuting the church, but planting churches. It is maybe one of the greatest, the single greatest transformation stories of all time. And in the course of Paul's ministry, as he preached the resurrection, as he preached this gospel message of Jesus risen from the dead, he went to a town called Corinth and he started a church there. And later, after he had started that church, he sent them this letter to encourage them, to instruct them. And as we get to the end of the letter, and now 1 Corinthians Uh, chapter 15, he he begins to remind them of some very important things. And so that brings us to our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And starting in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have passed away. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, for this time in your word today. I pray that you would make it fruitful. Lord, I pray that this gospel message, uh, Lord, that has uh, brought life from death over the last 2,000 years, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would right now in this moment do what only you can do. Lord, we've gathered here to worship you, to exalt your name, to proclaim your goodness and your resurrection power. And Lord, I pray that through that proclamation, uh, Lord, that you would save souls in this place today. Lord, that you would confirm to, to us who believe in you our salvation. And Lord, that you would strengthen us as your people to live for you until that day that you return. Lord, we live in light of the blessed hope that we have the hope of the resurrection. Lord, not just a hope of 2,000 years ago, but a hope of the future. That, Lord, we know that all who believe in you will be raised one day and spend eternity in your presence. It's to that day that we are living and it's to that end that we want to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In verse 1, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel. What is this word gospel? Well, translated literally, it means good news. Good news. How many of you like good news? Oh, I love good news. I love it when somebody calls me on the phone. They say, hey, I've got some good news. Or they send me a text and it's got some good news in it. Isn't that great when you get good news? The gospel of Jesus is good news. The message of the resurrection is good news. The message of Easter, as we're gathered here today on Easter Sunday, it is a message of good news. The empty tomb, the message of Christ, it is good news. In Greek, this, this word in Greek, the New Testament was originally not written in English, it was written in Greek. This word is euangelion, euangelion. It's a combination word. The word you in Greek, E-U, means good and angelion means news or message. It literally means good news, good message. Now when we hear the word gospel, we tend to think of a Christian term or a Christian word. But I want you to know that this word euangelion, it was not a Christian word. Christians did not invent this word. It was actually a word that was common in the first century. And it was common in those days, and it was a word that Christians did not invent, but they adopted. But the way that this word would have been used is that 
in the day in which Christ lived, there was no internet. So how did they get the news out? There was news back then. There just was no internet to spread the news. There, there was no television to spread the news. There was no radio to spread the news. There was, there was no print media to spread the news. So how was news spread in those days? By word of mouth. And when the king wanted to send a message out, he would gather his messengers, his angelions. It's where we also get the, the English word angel from. The word angel also means messenger. So he would gather his messengers and he would deliver unto them his message. And so when a king typically would win a great victory, would win a great battle, he would gather together his messengers, his heralds, his preachers, and he would send them to the far reaches of his kingdom to go and to declare this good news. And the messengers would go from town to town and they would go into the center of the city and they would lift up their voice and they would say, hear ye, hear ye, hear the proclamation of the king. Hear the good news. Hear the euangelion. Here's what has happened. And when Christians started going from town to town, spreading the news, not of some earthly king, but of the king of kings, spreading the news, not of some earthly victory in battle, but the battle that was won over sin and Satan and death and hell, they took that word euangelion. They took that word gospel and they claimed it for themselves. And it articulates for us the ministry of the apostles as they traveled from town to town declaring, hear ye, hear ye what our king has done. This is the gospel message. But notice here that Paul says, the message that I preached, the one that you received in which you stand, that this gospel message, this euangelion is different from every other gospel message. Because by this message, Paul says, you are being saved. That this message, this gospel proclamation, though there are other gospel messages, though there's other good news, there's only one good news that will save your soul. And it is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. This is the message that saves. Paul makes this astonishing claim that if you believe this message, you will be saved. So what is this message? What is this good news? How do we believe in this? Well, first we have to know it. And so Paul reminds them of this gospel message. And in verse three, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so not only does he remind them of this gospel message, he says, listen, and he writes this at the end of his letter, this is the most important thing in this letter. And if you're here today, I want you to know of everything that's gonna be said, this is it. This is the most important thing. Of all of the news in all of the world, real news, fake news, this is the good news. This is the most important message that any human being will ever hear the good news of Jesus Christ of first importance. What is this message? Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our 
sins. This is the beginning of the good news message. Christ died for our sins. Now, history bears witness to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who had a real following, who was executed by Rome. History bears witness to that. But Paul is not preaching not only a historical message, but Paul says that not only does this message grounded in history uh, have truth for us, but in fact, it is a spiritual message. So not only a historical message, but a spiritual message. And that these historical events have a spiritual and eternal implication to them. He says, Christ died for our sins. He doesn't say that Christ died because Rome uh, got mad at him because he ticked off the Roman governor. That's not what he says. He doesn't say Christ died because Jesus upset the Jewish establishment. No, no, no. You see, God was only using those things to accomplish what Jesus really came to do and accomplish. Christ died for our sins. For our sins. Now, sin is a word that we don't hear a lot today uh, outside of the church. Uh, we live in a culture that, that really doesn't believe in the idea of sin. We live in the, a culture that really doesn't believe in right or wrong, any sort of absolute morality. We live in the, 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 under the prevailing idea of postmodern thought, which says that if there is absolute truth, we certainly could never know what that truth is. That in and of itself is, is sinful rebellion against God who has delivered his truth to us, who writes his truth for us in the sky every single day, declaring that he is the creator. But we live in a culture that rejects the idea of truth, of good and evil, of moral absolutes. And so we don't, we don't in our culture, in our world, in, in modern society, think in terms of sin anymore. We think in terms of issues. People have issues. We think in terms of, of, of people having, having problems. But the Bible talks in terms of sin and righteousness. Of sin and, and righteousness. And so you may be unfamiliar with this concept of sin. And where it, where it first starts, where, where this idea of sin comes from, is from the very beginning when God created the world. The Bible says that God is the creator of everyone and everything. You are not simply the product of time and chance acting on matter. We reject that idea categorically. That we're all just here as the product of of, of space dust and protoplasm bumping into each other for a really long time. We reject the idea that everything in the universe is purposeless and meaningless. If you believe that, you would never get out of bed. You don't believe that. Nobody believes that. If you do believe that, you will be one of the most evil monsters on the face of the earth. If you believe that there's no God, that there's no creator, that everything is meaningless and purposeless, that we're all just the, 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 have no meaning and purpose in our life, that there's no one guiding human history, that we're not created in the image of God, 
that we, we, we our, our ancient ancestors used to be fish, and then they used to be apes, and, and now we're human beings. We, we, as Christians, we reject this notion categorically because it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Fish do not become philosophers. It's just not how this goes. The Bible says there is a creator and that he spoke the worlds into existence. And the world that he made was very good because he is very good. And that he formed and fashioned humanity in his own image, in his own likeness. And that every single human being bears in them the image of God. When I see you, I see the image of God. Not in a physical sense because uh, God is spirit. But God breathed his spirit into humanity. And so all of us have a soul. There's an immaterial part to every single one of us. It is our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions. That is the essence of who we are. We're not simply material beings living out in a simply material world. No, there is a spiritual world. There is a soul realm. That we're all living souls. But the story continues that after God created man in his own image and gave man his good decrees and righteous laws and said, this is how you are to live in the world that I have made. This is your purpose and this is what you are to do. That our first parents, Adam and Eve, said, we do not want to live that way. We do not want to live for God in God's world. We do not want to follow God. We do not want to follow his good and holy and righteous laws. In fact, we want to be a God in and unto of ourselves. We, we want to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. This is what's called the fall of humanity, the fall of mankind. When humanity was tempted by Satan himself and entered into a cosmic battle between good and evil, entered into rebellion, aligned themselves with Satan, the enemy of God. And even though Satan had promised them to be free, what immediately they found out is that they were not free at all, but in fact, they had been lied to by the deceiver and that they were then enslaved to sin, bound in sin. And that when sin entered into the world, so did everything horrible that is in the world. Sickness came into the world. Disease came into the world. Animosity came into the world. Anger and rage and violence and abuse came into the world. And death came into the world. Death, this plague on our race, this plague on our world, death is a result of sin. Sin brings death. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, all of us have gone our own way. Not old person in here that can hear my voice today has righteously obeyed God's law. We are born into sin because we're descended from sinners. Your parents were sinners. Your grandparents were sinners. Your great-grandparents were sinners on both sides. 
So I know some of you are looking at your spouse saying, yeah, (laughs) your parents are sinners. No, let me, on both sides of the equation, we, we descended all the way back to our first parents from sinners. We are sinners by nature, born in sin, but we're also sinners by choice. We have all chosen to break God's law. There's not a person in here who's never told a lie. There's not a person in here who's, who's, ever, who's never entertained a, an evil thought in your mind. You may say, well, I'm a good person. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered someone. Well, Jesus came, and, and when Jesus came, he said, even if you've thought about doing those things and had the desire in the, your heart to do those things, You've committed, you've broken God's law. You say, I've never thought and contemplated murder. You must have never driven on 1604 before, is all I can say. (laughs) We are all law breakers. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus distilled all of God's law, his holy and righteous law, which is good down to two commandments. He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of God. And there's not a person in here who could stand up and say, I have always done that perfectly. We're all lawbreakers. We all are born in rebellion against God. Sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And God has given us his law not to save us because by keeping the law we could never be saved because none of us can keep the law. But he gave us his law to show us our state, to show us who we are as lawbreakers and to point us to the one who could save us from our sin. Christ died for our sin. You see, there is a price to pay for sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The price for sin must be paid. Sin will be atoned for. Sin will be paid for. Because God is holy and God is righteous and because God is just. As the righteous judge of all the universe, God will not wink at sin. God cannot overlook sin without compromising who he is. And we all want righteousness in and of ourselves when we are sinned against, when when an an evil has been done against us, that because we're image bearers of God, we cry out for justice to be done. The human heart longs for justice, except for ourselves, except for when we've sinned, and we've transgressed, and we've sinned against others. We don't want justice. What do we want in that case? Mercy. Mercy. But God is a just judge. He is a righteous judge. He is perfectly holy. And all of us stand before God as sinners, as lawbreakers, as rebelling against him. And that sin must be paid for. But the good news is that Christ died for our sins. The good news is that Jesus 
who never once sinned, who was born not of of human descent, but was the Son of God, born of of the Virgin Mary. God uh, moved on, on Mary and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and Christ, the Son of God, lived in perfect obedience to God. Never once sinned, never once lied, never once cheated, never once thought an evil thought. Christ, who never once sinned, goes to the cross to die for sinners. The most famous verse in all of the Bible is John 3.16 that says that God so loved the world. You see, God is not just some sort of angry judge looking to send people to hell. No, God so loved the world. Though we had sinned against him and broken his law and rebelled against him, God still loves us. And because of his love, a love that is not based on who we are and our own goodness, but a love that is based on him and who he is and his nature and his character, he so loved the world that he sent his only son, the son of God, to die so that whoever whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have life everlasting, would have eternal life. The good news is that Jesus, the sinless one, died, laid down his life to save sinners. All of us accrued a debt against God But Jesus paid that debt and paid it in full. He purchased salvation for all who would believe upon him. It says that Christ died for our sin. The wages of sin is death. But that's not the end of that verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says after he died, he was buried. He was buried. Jesus was buried in a known tomb of a very famous man. It was a man named Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus. He was a believer in Christ. He wanted to see that that Jesus had a proper burial. Typically when people were crucified, they were not given a burial because it was all, crucifixion was reserved for the worst people in human society. And so part of the crucifixion was that they would be left there on the cross to rot until the birds had picked their bones clean and dogs ran away with the bones. But Joseph of Arimathea, a believer in Christ, asks for the body of Christ and buries him in his own tomb that he had prepared for himself. He was a very famous person in Jerusalem because he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was the Supreme Court of that day. It was made up of 70 judges. So he is one of the most prominent and influential men in all of Jerusalem. He takes the body of Jesus and eyewitnesses watch where they lay him. And then they actually seal the tomb with the Roman seal and put a Roman regiment there, the Roman guard there, to guard the tomb. 
to make sure that nobody would tamper with the body. But he goes on to say that he was dead and he was buried, but on the third day he rose. He rose on that third day. Death could not hold him down. Three days later, the tomb was empty. Jesus rose in victory. An angel came and rolled away the stone. The Roman guard fell down as dead men, astonished at what they saw. The the angel didn't roll the stone away so Christ could get out. The angel rolled the stone away so the witnesses could get in and see that Jesus had risen from the dead. He could not be held by death. The sinless, spotless Son of God rose in victory over sin and over Satan and over death, crushing the head of the serpent, crushing the one that had plagued us from the very beginning, from the very Garden of Eden. Jesus defeated the foe of our soul. And the resurrection proves, the empty tomb proves that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father but through me. That there is not many ways of salvation. There are not two ways of salvation. There is only one way of salvation and having your sins forgiven and being made right with God the Father, our Creator. It is through faith in His Son and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. There is only one way to be saved of our sins. It was necessary for Jesus to die for sinners, but it's also necessary that sinners put their faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way, there is no other name given among heaven by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. There are those who say there are many ways to God. Just follow your own path and you'll get there. Just try your best. Wrong. Our best is as filthy rags before a righteous and holy God. We cannot clean ourselves up and come to God. We we cannot earn salvation through our own good works and our own efforts. It's only on the efforts of Christ, the work of Christ. Why is Jesus the only way? Because Jesus is the only one who paid the price for sin. Christ Jesus died for our sins. Christ Jesus was buried and on the third day he rose. And this is why we celebrate the resurrection today. Not only here at Destiny Church, but with billions around the world today, we celebrate the resurrection Because Christ is singular in all of history. There is nobody else who is like them. There is nobody else even close to Jesus Christ. He alone is the mediator between God and man. Because he alone is God and man. He alone is the way to God. There is no other. He alone bore the sin of the world. He alone bore your sin and my sin. He alone conquered death and Satan and hell. He alone can heal. He alone can deliver. He alone can give you salvation. He alone can give life to your soul. It is Jesus Christ and only Jesus. He alone has risen. 
And he alone has the one with the power to save your soul. You say, how could, I, how could I believe this message? How could I know that the tomb was empty? He tells us that Jesus didn't raise in isolation, but he, he appeared to his apostles. He appeared to his disciples. And he appeared at once to many eyewitnesses, a group of 500 at once. These eyewitnesses that, that while Paul is writing, these are men who are still alive. This wasn't a myth. This was a historically verifiable event. And Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, go ask the other 500 eyewitnesses that are still alive that saw Jesus. He points to real people who really saw him. As the time that Paul wrote the, the, the scriptures, at the time that the New Testament was written, if Jesus had been in the tomb, all they had to do was produce the body and all of this is over. But there were eyewitnesses and they could not shut them up. Even death could not shut them up. But notice he says this phrase, he mentions it twice. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with these scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament. These events that happened, they, they didn't happen in a vacuum. They didn't happen in isolation. In fact, these events were the climax of the grand narrative, of the grand history that God himself had been writing from the very beginning. This grand history that, that spans the whole Bible that started 4,000 years before Christ when Adam and Eve sinned. You see, God made a promise to Eve that one day one of her descendants would crush the head of Satan. 2,000 years before Christ, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham that one of his descendants would be a blessing to the nations of the world. And through Abraham, God brought forth a nation, a nation descended from Abraham, the Jewish people. God marked off the Jewish people from the rest of the nations of the world. And through the Jewish people, God promised to bring a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ, who would be the Savior of the world. God established the Jewish people in a land, in the land of Israel. He gave them a nation and a kingdom. And a thousand years before Christ, God promised to one of the kings, King David, that one of King David's descendants, physical descendants, natural descendants, would rule over a kingdom that would never end. 750 years before Christ, God th spoke through the prophet Isaiah and described in great detail how this conquering king would suffer and die, would pay the price for sin, but that this king would rise from the dead. 700 years before Christ, God spoke through the prophet Micah and pinpointed the place where the Messiah King would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. 500 years before Christ, God spoke through the prophet Zechariah that the Messiah would be betrayed by one of his closest friends. 400 years before Christ, God promised and spoke through the prophet Malachi that there would be a messenger who would go before Christ, would go before the Messiah, preparing the way. That messenger was John the Baptist. 
And the long-promised Savior, King, Messiah was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. For over 2,000 years, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to declare to his people the time, the place, the person, the circumstances of his Messiah in intricate and exhausting detail in the scriptures, in the Old Testament account, nearly 400 of these predictions were made about who this Messiah would be, all of them written down, and all of them fulfilled by only one man, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. All of this happened. It wasn't an accident. It was God's plan. From the moment humanity entered into sin, God set forth a plan to redeem humanity by sending his son. Hundreds and thousands of years before Christ, these predictions were made by people who never knew each other, by people who never met each other, by people who spoke different languages and lived on different continents. Yet all of them tell one unified single story about a Messiah coming and they all point us in one direction to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Jesus is the blessing of Abraham. Jesus is the king descended from David. Jesus is the one who died and rose again. It is Jesus and it is only Jesus. And the message of the resurrection goes out. And through it, God calls you to believe in his son, Jesus. Paul says that by believing this message, you will be saved. You are not saved because of your parents' faith. You are not saved because of your grandparents' faith. You are not saved because you live in the United States of America, which historically has been a Christian nation. No, no, no. What are you saved by? You are saved by grace through faith. You must place your faith in Christ. You must trust in his work on the cross. You must abandon all of your own notions of your own good works and your own righteous deeds to make yourself righteous before God. It's only by his righteousness that we are saved there are so many substitute saviors going around today, so many things that people put their faith in. People put their faith in their education. They think that their education will save them. People put their faith in their career, thinking that their career will be a functional savior for them. People put their faith in their spouse or the idea of finding a spouse one day. Or people put their faith in their kids and who their kids will be. We're, we're, we're naturally, as image bearers of God, designed to put our faith somewhere. And so people put their faith everywhere, but we can only put our faith in Christ if we hope to be saved. There are many today who put their faith in politicians. I don't know why people still do this, but people still do put their faith in politicians. We just need to put the right person in the, in the White House and everything will go well. well. Let me just tell you something. We've had red people in there. We've had blue people in there. It's all still going bad, all right? <laughs> Government will not save us. It's only the Son of God 
Jesus. Of all the advancements that humanity has made over the last 2,000 years, there are two things that we cannot overcome. If you take all of the human achievement, the advancements in medicine and technology and transportation, food production, science, space exploration, we've mapped the human genome, we've split the atom, yet there are two problems that continuously plague humanity. We cannot fix the problem of sin and death. But there is one who has conquered sin and death. And it is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Paul concludes his statements in this passage by saying, Last of all, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul had a colorful past. Paul was not the good guy. He was the bad guy. You may come in here today and say, you don't understand my past. You don't understand what I've done. Listen, Paul was enemy number one. If the church would have had a post office, it would have been his picture hanging on the wall. (laughs) Churches most wanted. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Yet he says, I am what I am. By the grace of God. But by the grace of God. The grace of God is unmerited favor. And I want you to know today that right now in this moment, the God of heaven, the God of the universe, the creator who made you, who formed you in, his, in your mother's womb and fashioned you in his image, right now God is showing to you unmerited favor. He's showing to you grace and he is beckoning you to himself. He is saying, be reconciled to me by the provision that I have made, the cross, the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, God chose me so that the riches and the depths of his grace could be demonstrated to everybody else. Paul shows us that anyone can be saved that we're not saved by our past. We're saved because of our past. It's because of our past that we need a Savior. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, grace, unmerited favor, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The empty tomb demands a response. The claims of Christ demand a response. We cannot pretend to be neutral on them. We either believe them or we reject them. The claims are too staggering. The implications are too significant. There truly is no middle ground. You must decide what you're going to do with the empty tomb. And I call on you today, do not stay in darkness, but come into the light of Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. This world is passing away. There is no other savior than Jesus Christ. This life is short. This life is like a vapor. You do not know if you are going to live to see tomorrow. The Bible says that none of us is promised tomorrow and that when we die, we stand before the Lord. And when we stand before him, we will either be clothed in his righteousness 
or we will be clothed in our own righteousness, which are as filthy rags. We will either be welcomed into heaven on the account of the work of Christ, or we will be ushered into hell for our rebellion and sin. I lay the choice before you today, and I call on you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not let this moment pass you by. Do not say, I'll do it tomorrow, or I'll do it next week, or I got to get my life straight and fixed out. Hey, guess what? You're going to be working on that the rest of your life. You might as well do it with God's help, because there is no way you're going to do it without it. We cannot straighten ourselves out. He is the one who straightens us up. We come to him broken. We come to him scarred. We come to him as sinners. And he bestows on us faith and grace and mercy. And we leave redeemed, washed clean as saints and his people. When this message was first preached, 50 days after the resurrection on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached this message to the same crowds that had crucified Jesus. When they heard this message of the empty tomb and who Jesus was, the Bible says that they were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do? Peter, what do we do? And Peter said, repent of your sins Call on Christ and be baptized, every one of you. And that is the same response that all of us must do. We must repent of our sin, put our faith in Christ, and be baptized. Be baptized. Tonight, we're going to have water baptisms at our service. And I would encourage you, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who has repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, come tonight at 6 o'clock and be baptized. Come tonight and show, show, declare, publicly declare, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have had my sins washed away by his blood. And we will celebrate with you and, and enjoy the resurrection life that we all share together. As we close today, at the close of our service, when we're done today, we're going to have prayer teams up front. If you would like to pray with somebody about receiving Christ, if, if you would like more someone to counsel with you or talk to you about, but, about what all of this means, we have people here available to pray with you, to talk with you. If you have questions about baptism, we're here to serve you today. But don't let this moment pass you by without calling out to Christ for salvation. Amen? Amen. The tomb is empty. He is risen. And we celebrate the salvation that we have in him. Amen. Let's all stand together. Father, we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you for the shed blood, the sinless life, the victorious resurrection. We thank you for your ascension into glory. We thank you for your imminent return. 
We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, none of us deserves anything but death. But you, because of your grace and mercy, bestow life and life eternal on all who call on you in faith. We thank you for the eternal life that we have in you, our Savior and our Lord. We give you glory and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.